These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. Chapter 41 is almost harder to get through than the previous one because it requires us to sift through the emotional fallout of everything that's happened. We were alluding to this earlier. Harry's maiming, the loss of Annie, Frank's emotional shutdown, Miguel trying to come to terms with his actions, and Frau also trying to come to terms with what she is and the choice she almost made. I'll be honest, part of me never felt like there was any real danger of Frau choosing Seth. Maybe Frau doesn't have the personal experience with Seth that others do. Maybe she has different values than the humans. Maybe in some ways she would feel more at home with Seth. But Frau came here following Miguel, and just because he's back with his kind doesn't mean that she hasn't developed her own ties to humans, and would always choose Miguel over a stranger. And yet at the same time, my expectation was tainted by the idea that the audience already knows that Frau shows up. Maybe if it had been framed differently, it would have felt like the outcome was more uncertain. Like if the Green Hollow plot and the Frau plot had been mixed together instead of separated. Maybe in a different medium, this would have been done differently. But regardless, I also understand that it's less about how it appears to the reader, and more about the internality of Frau herself. On top of that, the fact that she had uncertainty inside lends more weight to later in the chapter, where she asserts kinship with the rest of Team Steam. Even James must come to terms with the absence of Rebecca, And in fact, so much more. He narrates doing what Annie told him she did all the way back in secret rooms. And as we hear Annie's final message that accompanies her gift, voiced by Loretta, (laughs) we do not need to hear James's emotional outpouring. His grief is our own. His tears are our tears. (laughs) This chapter instills a sense of yawning emptiness within me. hurts us in a way that strands us and each character. The full extent of their loss, trauma, and the ways they will process, internalize, and act upon all of this can't possibly be encapsulated in the short time that we have left. All we can experience is the first response to it that each character goes through. 
either attempting to figure out a roughly hatched idea of what comes next or how to come to terms with what they went through in these last chapters or perhaps just shutting down entirely. And that works as an ending because it's dramatic, it's literally life-changing. It feels like a punctuation that allows us to breathe and settle. It's exactly what streaming platforms don't allow for when they give you a recommendation on frame one of you reaching credits on a movie. Oh, you wanted time for your emotions to settle and to properly come to grips with the journey you just experienced? Well, too fucking bad! Have you watched One Piece yet? This isn't that. It's a moment of letting the developments of this last act hit you, and for the implications to not even be fully explored, but at least be considered for a moment. It's like when James reflected on what losing his eye meant for him in Secret Runes. It makes the big finale feel more real, and that leaves us in a very emotionally vulnerable space as we approach the end, knowing that there is so much for us to go over in the future and that all we can do is just feel it. But it's almost as if the act of feeling it is a victory to hold on to, that we get to hold on to. It's like what Harry realizes and comes to terms with before she sees the consequences in full. We are still here. We are still alive. That was not always a guarantee. And in cases like Abigail and James, the outpouring of emotion is not something that always came easily to them in one form or another. It is the most bitter of bittersweet feelings for it to still classify as such. But it is nevertheless sweet to still hold on to what we can feel together with these characters. Obviously, we'll talk more about Abigail in a moment. What comes to mind is thinking about when the audio drama was first coming out, as it always does, chapter by chapter, week after week, giving us a little piece of the story and then letting us sit with just that chapter before moving on to the next. And I'm I'm pondering what it must have been like for people at the time. I don't remember uh, if you were listening week to week. To week. I, I have to say, at that point, I had a backlog of Steam Heart mm. chapters, so I listened to it when it was done. I had mm. gotten up to, I think, about chapter 28 or something, and then I caught up with the rest of the book once it had been out. So mm-hmm. even I can't imagine it. What occurs to me is, as we're talking about the pain, we're also talking a little bit about, like, it's not enough to reflect on the loss. There also has to be a little bit of hope, the future, embedded in with chapter 41, because it's not all in chapter 42, which is Mm. why we need to have the scene with Crow and Miguel outlining new tribe, Mm. you know, reminding people of 
the gain as well as the loss. Mm. The other part of that hope being Jeremy's final journal entry, playing capstone to the chapter. One core pairing of Team Steam may be utterly shattered, but at least Jeremy, the heart of the group, gets to return to his husband. Both his love and his dream, a dream of seeking new worlds, live in that journal narration. Chapter 41 plays out like a more elongated version of those montages that you have sometimes where it's like there's montages that can be very bombastic and dynamic as we see, oh, this is someone learning how to do a thing or overcome a thing or people coming together. And instead, this is an elaborated montage of their shared grief. And that's mm. part of what makes it difficult to get through in places. As soon as you take in the depth of what one person has lost, you move on to someone else who mm. may even be reacting to the same aspect of a particular thing, but just the perspective they have on it. It's different forms of grief over a shared experience. As hard-hitting as the audio drama is to hear it voiced in our beloved actors' voices, it didn't hit me less hard just rereading the text. I have been constantly using the text more as we have gone through season by season, book by book, outline by outline, because it's easier for me to flip through to find the exact moments, and it's harder to skip through the audio drama we can't control F and audio file. Yeah, exactly. When Alex has commented on in the past to be like, is the script as good as the finished product? And I know we've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Fuck yes. <laughs> Just the words are extremely emotionally effective. Entirely. And you and I just finished a new New Century book. I was a wreck by the end of Castle of the Moon. The best thing I can say to sort of assuage any concerns of this sort of thing, at least from Alex as the author and producer of this, is that having got to the end of Castle of the Moon, I forget that it was not an audio drama version mm. of it that I listened to because it came alive so much for me that for all intents and purposes, it was one and the same with his mm -hmm. best works in audio drama, because I went on record to say that Castle of the Moon is one of my three favorite New Century books now. Yeah. It's just, it just is. And I felt that way about Stone Spring and Panther Soul before we had audio dramas for it. And mm -hmm. they don't need that extra layer to be valid. That's mm -hmm. the best way to put it. They are yeah. entirely valid and just as strong if people can talk about you know oh like is the anime better is the manga better and stuff like that it's like hey i like both i like both mm -hmm. of new century and when it eventually gets a film adaptation i will say i like all three unless it has a horrible adaptation in which case we'll just sort of chalk it up to like <laughs> oh god you know we we talk about how oh we would love to have Guillermo del Toro 
Imagine the M. Night Shyamalan adaptation oh, of this. Oh. I know. <laughs> I just, I needed to share that cursed thought. I couldn't let it just, just oh. stay in my own head. Oh. We both recently listened to the After School Club on Old, and I'm just like, why? No, no, thank you. Anyway, we, we're done that, with that. <laughs> let get that cursed thought of our out of our heads now. Um, <laughs> out of this house. Out of this house. Moving on. Yes. Chapter 41 ends with a tale we have yet to be told. I feel safe in saying that, regardless of the fact that we're trying not to allude to future events, this story that Jeremy is talking about has not been revealed to us yet. Yeah, like even in, after all this time. Yeah. Investigating Malloy's words on a white tiger. A white Jer tiger. Mm-hmm. Jeremy tells us that what they encountered was worthy of another story entirely. And for the longest time, I found myself without a clue as to what this story could be. And then, one fine day, I don't remember what the inciting event was, but I got a DM from New Century fan Bonsai Tree, also known as Timu's Hellas Hayo, who noted a crucial detail. And at this point... I just want to assign Bonsai as being like a special through the window correspondent. Please come on any time, by the way, because like off the strength of what Greg shared alone, I'm like, wow, we need to have more conversations. T-Muse is considering that in part because he's so far off in terms of time zone with us that this would need to be arranged in advance and he'd want to make it worth the effort. But, Toby, <laughs> do you think that the White Tiger was Brask, Hakka's old mentor gone walkabout, and come to Centrum through the West Virginia door a long while back? And if so, what do you think we'll learn from the experience? I mean, I, I do now. Like, it's, it's a damn good theory. I definitely could see that being the case. Like, it just, it works very well, and I had never really considered it. In the case of just, oh, I felt like that one-off character of Brask was, you know, a part of Hacker's backstory, and he had almost served his purpose. And not every character has to sort of wind back in, in a significant way. Sometimes they just serve their purpose. We have recently discovered one such instance where Alex has managed a very successful workaround of a previous <laughs> character, not going to say anything. In this instance, it would make a lot of sense. I don't know that I could possibly posit what our characters would learn from such an experience, because the details and true nature of it are obscured to us for now. All we know is that they wouldn't have been away for too long because of, I think, something about the wording mentions that it wasn't like an expedition that took several months. Was it even just a day? I, I can't remember. I wasn't actually sure how long it was, but going back and doing the math, no, it was likely not long at all. The conversation just prior to the journal entry was at or close to July 24th, 1883. And then Jeremy leads into the Clendenin incident with a month later. The timestamp after that, the moment when James and Abigail step into Weirwood, is listed as early September. And given that there had to be some travel time from Clendenin to New Athens to Weirwood, 
and we have no idea if they traveled any of that by Zeppelin, then the events at Clendenin had to have lasted no more than a few days, maybe a week. Without any further details, we're kind of just feeling in the dark. I think that if it were to be Brask, his perspective would possibly yield insight into the interdimensional connectivity between these different worlds, specifically how far the history of these permeable borders goes back to. He was privy to the stories and prophecies that so preoccupied Hacker, but he had an openness to the more ephemeral and unknowable qualities of these signs that might have actually enabled him to open his mind in his travels to all of the deeper revelations that he may be able to share with the characters he interacted with in this mysterious adventure. Either way, it's hard to speculate further because we have seen where some of the characters who would be involved in this story would end up later. Mm. Whatever insight and revelations came from this closed-off story are ones that we will have seen mixed into the versions of these characters that you and I have seen in later books. Um, we're not going to give too much away about where they are heading, but a personal thought that I had before we sat down to talk and I read through your notes is that I thought that this Unseen episode might be a smaller part of a story that we are already aware of that is going to come up in the future. Like, it could be a flashback in Four Worlds Collide, or indeed a chapter in the Cartographer's World book, you know, in a similar way that how the Cartographer's Handbook has little mm. self-contained stories that are contributions to it, because by the time the Cartographer's World book is a thing, and whatever that world book form takes, who knows, there's a possibility that there will be all sorts of little self-contained moments of new century that will come forward and finally pay off there, but time will tell. You make a good argument that it could be either of those two future books. I feel like there's a strong likelihood that a good plot component will be revealed in Four Worlds Collide, because I, I, I do like where your, your speculations and suppositions match some of my own in terms of Brask having a deeper understanding of the interconnected nature of worlds and the history, specifically as it relates to Rama and Centrum, or even just Rama and other worlds, all those paintings of like people with guns coming through a portal and mm. intruding on the world of Rama. Though, to be honest, that could be anyone. We automatically assume they are humans because whatever they are are clearly unlike the cats of Rama and wield weapons that could be guns. But it could be any humanoid wielding a weapon that is held like a gun, but nothing like the guns you and I would identify as familiar to us. Hell, it could be hairy aliens! We'll just have to wait and see. I, I feel like that is definitely going to inform, not to put a too fine a point on it, these four worlds colliding. Mm -hmm. uh, it does make me think on that part of Tiger's Eye and how Haka experienced the lessons that Brask had to teach him and then be like, okay, well... 
you're in charge of the tribe now. I'm going to peace out. Maybe Brask felt like Haka wasn't ready to internalize some of the deeper nature of these ancient stories. And that he felt like he could do more good by seeking out these other worlds and trying to speak to people more willing to listen to what he has to say. I don't know. I feel like he decided that maybe teaching Haka and molding the tribe was less important than the bigger picture, so to speak. Okay, two responses to that. Number one, are we now drawing a parallel between Brask and Krieger in that like, they each try to use folklore and stories in order to kind of impart an idea that they're talking about that like to their captive audience they're Mm. trying to teach them through these stories brask is a shaman yes he knows about teaching through stories yes krieger like well at time of this moment in the series we don't know what krieger's deal is so we (laughs) got out of that one uh Krieger just steps through the portal with Greta, takes off human mask, and it's Brask all along. It's me, Austin! Oh, son of a bitch! What? It's me, Austin! It was me all along, Austin! Damn, I cannot believe he's... And underneath the Brask mask is Carl! I will never stop bringing it back to that dumb joke I made back in that original interview. I will never stop. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a deep pull. That's a pre-through-the-window pull, sir. You had to be there. And we were. But Mm -hmm. the second thing I was going to respond to that with is the idea of this wise mental character who should have all of the answers, but then he fucks off because... He maybe has slightly more important stuff to do, or he just, it's in the hands of other people. We've seen that happen before in, like, Mm. stories, you know. To a certain extent, like, Luke in The Last Jedi is almost this person who, Mm. like, you know, when the world needs them most, they sort of go away. Or even in uh, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, there's the father of the two protagonist brothers mysteriously leaves and one of them resents him as a deadbeat dad who ran out on them and left them and blames him for the fact that their mother died and as the story goes on you sort of learn more about what his deal is but so like it kind of makes sense to me that Brask as this slightly abrasive and unconventional teacher because, like, Hacker was always, I think, frustrated in him as a teacher. Mm. But I feel like Brask may have been even more frustrated in him as a student. Mm, and mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll find out, won't we? We'll find out. Thank you, Banzai Tree. I really, really like this insight that you have brought to the table. Because the White Tiger has been... They've been here since the beginning. And yet they remain this like you know if we have the cork board it's like can we talk about the white tiger i feel like i really need to talk about the white tiger (laughs) yeah yeah all right putting that to one side of all the remaining members of team steam the one that seems most on an even keel after the trip is jeremy 
We don't really hear from him again, at least not in his own words. I believe he does speak up during that final meeting of the group in Chapter 42. Of course, there is the scene where he's getting Miguel and Rao into their new digs at Langley, but what I mean is, we don't hear him talk any further about his personal thoughts or feelings. I find it intriguing that he appears to have come to terms with his own trepidations after the trip into Saitash. He, at least, made it home to the man that loves him, and I did briefly wonder if he was honest with Donald about all that he went through. I like to think, given who he is as a character, that he was, and I also like to think that Donald knows Jeremy and accepted it. It's difficult to know, but there is nothing from previously established interactions that Mm -hmm. suggests that Jeremy would decide to be unforthcoming with Donald, because so much of it is that they are both heavily invested in things that no one else would necessarily understand, but they do. And yes, there is a nice parallel between having the shared interest and scientific exploration and enthusiasm for the supernatural and the occult and the rest of the world not necessarily gelling with that, and the fact that they have to be somewhat closeted and guarded with their relationship with one another. Clever little double entendre there where closeted can apply both to the work that they do, but also, as Toby alluded, they have to remain in the closet as regards their romantic relationship. As Unicorn, they are chroniclers of a subsection of truth that mm-hmm. needs to be protected. And, I mean, you may, may be keeping secrets that are too dangerous for other people, but that truth has to be available to someone, and you can't be a chronicler of truth if you aren't able to be honest with Mm. the people it matters most to. Yeah. We're given the least indication of where he's at out of all of the team's team members. His finale really came with the expedition into Saitash. That was the end of his, like, arc, I think, Mm -hmm. or really the culmination of it. And the encounter with Seth and the subsequent ordeal with Green Hollow... In those instances, he's more of a support than he is someone who is continuing his own personal journey, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. To say more would be to give away where he heads in another book. But for now, he is able to come back to the man he loves. And for the time being, at least, that relationship, which was denied a chance to stand proudly in the open during the Act One ball, is now able to persist and exist safe from the all-too-common plight and tragedy of gay characters in so much fiction. Because, you know, in the past, it felt as if gay stories in mainstream media could only be told if it was presented as a tragedy. It was an effective way to engender sympathy from the uninitiated by humanizing these fellow people that deserve to live and love, but were rarely afforded a chance to do so in these stories. But when that was so abundant that it felt like the only gay story mainstream audiences were prepared to hear was this kind of story where they meet unfortunate ends, it feels so limiting and frankly disheartening for any demographic to feel as if they can only be represented in one form, much less one in which they are suffering. 
To summarize, it's nice that one of the few main characters in this book to come out relatively well adjusted and returning to something not too dissimilar to what they left behind is the gay man of the group. But on the flip side, of course, Harry doesn't get that same benefit. On paper, this is true. Although in the case of romance, at least, that already came to something resembling a happy resolution. And Abby and Harry are still close, even if they're not a couple. She was there to help Harry with her convalescence, after all. It seems like a weird hair to split, but it's important to denote that what happened to Harry was not wedded to her homosexuality, even by implication, as the kill-your-gays trope often is. Perhaps, but it is important to point out that, you know, when we revisit those words, everyone would gain something, everyone would lose something, and not everybody would be coming back. Mm -hmm. Jeremy returns not unscathed, but recovering. And Harry is still, for now, around to continue her story. Mm. She has the potential to heal from this, to come back from this. That was the whole point of James doing limited injury to her to give her the best Mm. chance at future happiness. The one person that dies is the cishet woman. Mm. So, yeah. One thing I do like appreciate, like is not the right word, appreciate about what happens to Harry is that even though she is at the point of passing out from the pain and just delusion, just in delirium rather than delusion, James does essentially ask for permission. Agency. Like Agency. keep on coming back yeah. to it. And she, in that moment where she understands, she gives some sort of response that shows she understands. And that is enough to give her own agency and her own, it's not even consent, it's just do it. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's what it is. And so that is something that means that she has agency throughout so much of this book. And when we come to see her in another book because now we we can be so forthcoming with which characters we are going to see in which books but uh when we see her again that concept that idea of agency and who has taken it away from her is going to be a major components that we are going to talk about harry arlington will return oh yeah <laughs> hmm with everything else that has gone on, all the emotional weight we are carrying, the final chapter is a gift in some ways. Mm-hmm. We get to see Abby and Mary Sampson come to terms after what happened between them in secret rooms. We get to find out that Mayor Buck, who I refer- jokingly referred to as Mayor Two Names Buck, because he was named Caleb Buck in one of the books and Lucas Buck in the other one. And no one realized that there was a discrepancy until I pointed it out to Alex. Wow, I forgot that. Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) Sorry, Alex, I didn't mean to rain on your parade. 
But I kind of like the headcanon that like the various record keepers kind of make mistakes because no one really cares enough about him to fact yes. check this. Yeah, right? let, let, let's give a let's give a Watsonian explanation as to why <laughs> his name changes because no one fucking cares about Mayor Buck. Yeah, it's just sort of like, you know, uh, what was his name? Uh, Mad Duck? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Duck, yeah. <laughs> Although I'm sure that if Alex had to rewrite these stories, it's not the first name that Alex would have done differently. Commissioner Gordon, we just heard that Jack Napier's making a run on Access Chemical or whatever, and he's like, boy, that sounds like a bad deal. Uh, who's in charge down there? And the guy's like, Eckhart, sir. And Jim Gordon flashes back to, like, the biggest mistake of his hiring practices and just goes, oh, my God. <laughs> Pat Engel's delivery on the oh, my God, which you see twice because Batman watches it on security footage, is, so, oh, my I, God. I, I want him to say that every time he hears Eckhart's doing anything. <laughs> who's, wait, who's getting, the, who's getting the lunch order this week? Eckhart, Eckhart sir. sir. Oh, my God. <laughs> wait. What do you mean the restroom's occupied? Who's in there? Uh, Eckhart, sir. Oh, my God. <laughs> Close it down. Brick it up. <laughs> Shut him in there. There is no more Eckhart now. See what I'm saying? Well, I'm. Uh, this is a wonderful Christmas dinner. I understand there's one more plate at the table. Who, who, who else is coming to this thing? Uh, Eckhart, dear. Oh, my God. <laughs> I will never have enough of the way he says, oh, my God. The point is, we get to find out that he was run out of town. Good fucking riddance. Sure, we'll never see him again. We get to see Abby and James visit Weirwood. I pronounced it correctly this time. You're not going to get another Weirdwood out of me accidentally. And we get a heartwarming message from Tabitha that baby Jay is named after the fallen soldier. Jay Hune is only right and good. We like this actually did not realize this until the most recent revisiting it's mm -hmm. so yeah. nice this doesn't have to be the case but i feel like i would be remiss by not at least exploring the possibility is it possible that jay hoon was the father i honestly don't know i know that tabitha gives a sort of somewhat like you know passing explanation of who the father was and there's really no reason for that to have to be a lie or for anything like his sacrifice has merit it, and significance no matter what because, yeah. you know, he was a brave man. That We don't know much about him, but that's all we need to know. Going back to Tabitha's explanation, and of course the timing of when she got pregnant, I'm 90% sure that Jay Hoon wasn't the father. In Tabitha's words, the father had no interest in raising a baby, so she took what she needed from him. Her words and the way she says them suggests to me that she might not have thought much of the, shall we say, genetic donor. And on top of that, Jae-hoon was her second. That suggests he was fiercely loyal. And as Toby said, that's all we need to know. The idea that Jae-hoon gave his life because he was the father almost feels like it would be less impactful, playing too much into male-female stereotypes. And then we have the moment where Abby finally sheds tears over Lucy. And we're wrecked all over again. This is the essential ingredient of hope that is peppered throughout this ending that makes it more palatable. We see the instances of life persevering and moving forward in spite of the ugliness of what 
they and we have seen and the unfairness of what has been lost. It's like the ending blurbs that exist in a docudrama or as you say, they're sort of like, here's what happened to this person afterwards or hell, even the sort of things you would get with the end of the Fire Emblem game where it gives you a brief mm. blurb of what happened to each of the surviving units you have at the end of the game. It's seeing the seeds of a story that were planted by the characters throughout their actions in the narrative coming to flower. You're seeing the results of what happened, which gives even more meaning to the story that you are now finishing up and reading. It tells us that it wasn't for nothing, that what our characters do matters, who they interact with matter, their lives that they get to live are important. The world these people are building and progressing in little but significant ways, even if it feels as if it's one step forward and two steps back, is worthwhile. The one reference that it feels like we failed to make throughout most of our analysis was actually how Steamheart was influenced by the Mass Effect trilogy. Alex has talked about how that series was very influential on New Century in general and Steamheart in particular, which is part of the reason why getting to check in on all these characters we met along the way, for good and for ill, helped give us the feeling of a living world that keeps happening even when we are not witnessing it. We want to see happy endings for the characters we like, or proper comeuppance for those we don't. All of it shaped by the influence of our main cast. Like Toby says, these small codas give us some measure of closure, even if the main plot does not. But I did have a question to raise, which I don't necessarily have fully thought out answer to. I have ideas, but I'm kind of more interested in hearing your thoughts first. What was the story or emotional significance of Abigail's inability to cry for all these years and then finally being able to do so here at the end of Steamheart? So I've been thinking about that since I first read your notes. Um, I feel like I'm still processing it, and my ideas are going to be a little bit jumbled here. But when we covered Secret Rooms, I think there was some definite discussion on the idea of a delayed response to trauma, a term most people know better as arrested development. Now the story of a wealthy family who lost everything. And no, no, stop it. Stop it, Editor Greg. I know the topics of this recording have been very heavy, but this is a serious question. We're going to treat it seriously. As has been alluded to in other places, the significance of Abby and James, they are the mind and the heart. Yeah. They both had a traumatic response to Lucy's death. As well as the complicated emotions they had for her and how those contributed to how things played out. And James's way of dealing with that was to wall off his emotions and devote himself in his work, basically focusing on the thing that he is best at, at using his mind. Mm. But the thing that Abby is best at is using her emotions, both channeling them towards productive ends, 
but also eventually using her empathy and perception and ability to connect with others as a way to get things done. So therefore, she couldn't wall off her emotions in the same way or that she did wall off this one particular emotion, but in the meantime, going through her life functioning by feeling all of her other emotions very strongly. If I were Sharon, I'd probably be able to use Inside Out to explain this better, but suffice it to say, what she did to herself in Weirwood was emotional cauterization. She had a tendency to feel anger or indignation or righteousness far more potently, and that doing so is a way of protecting her from that grief. I remember mm. mentioning at one point, a while back, there is a favored Forgotten Realms tie-in where the protagonist pursues vengeance and anger and righteousness as a way to stave off loss and grief. Mm. Which is a sort of common trope of revenge narratives, isn't it? That it is the thing they do in order to kind of like just function and stave off like actually processing it and accepting it. Or in some cases, they, they try to heal the normal way and more trauma comes along. Hi, John Wick. Um, <laughs> in this case, of course, there is no one to take revenge on, no enemy to defeat, no one for James and Abigail to blame but themselves. Even though I would hardly want to. People make mistakes, especially when you're young and love is involved. So in some ways, cauterizing that part of her might have been a form of self-flagellation for Abigail as well. I, I'm really thankful for this opportunity to talk about it because mm. it is, like, I, I will confess that this has been a sort of, not really a stumbling block. You know, it's not some big reveal that is sort of a key development for the plot of New Century, so to speak. Mm. But it nevertheless is something that is important to Abigail's. It has the plants, and then this is the payoff. And I felt it in a way that I couldn't really quite articulate mm. why it felt significant. I just kind of, in talking with you, wanted to sort of maybe figure out that. And I think everything you're saying makes a lot of sense. I think it also feels telling that Abigail often worries, like, is there something wrong or broken in mm. me? Trick question. We're all a little broken because the simple act of living causes trauma. The real question is not if Abby is broken, but if she can heal. And she is healing. I had actually misremembered this until revisiting these chapters for this recording, because I thought it was actually them visiting Annie's grave rather than Lucy. And... The fact that it is actually Lucy, that this is revisiting the site where their rift started. The first trauma. The first trauma, yeah. I think it definitely says something about it, that a big part of the nature of it is that it's almost... I, I cannot remember if there is mention of her finding it impossible to cry or like she couldn't find it within her to cry is something that comes up Yes, chronologically, it, it, before Lucy's death happens. 
Lucy is the inciting said, incident. Lucy is the inciting incident. Before I could shout, before I even decided what I could shout, Catherine had taken aim and fired through the gate. I fell to my knees, shielding Joe, who screamed in confusion and fear as I held her tightly. This was my first encounter with a Wendigo, and I would have given up most anything upon the spot for it to be someone else but her. I stared and stared and breathed in ragged gasps as James came into my field of vision, his face stricken with horror and grief. And yet no tears were coming from my eyes. What was wrong with me? Was I broken? She brings it up in Steamheart. Thomas and Sarah gathered around Harry. We love you so much, honey. I couldn't be prouder. You are our brave girl. And you're going to accomplish wonders. I couldn't stop thinking about my mom and dad. And I caught my breath. Was I about to cry? I breathed slowly and backed away from the Arlingtons, tilting my head as if to examine what was going on in there. And nothing. Not one tear. Not even a sniff. I will never not be broken if this didn't move me. Yeah. And now, finally, at the end of the story... She has, on some level, finally processed everything that happened to her. I feel like, and I hate saying this, but I feel like it's Annie's death that is like the final stone laid into place for her to be able to finally process that first grief. I guess it's because it's much more immediate like you can see the connection much more immediately and directly between annie and james because Mm. what annie shares with him in secret rooms about how the way she processes it is that she tries to keep it together until she can find a space where she is by herself and then just Mm -hmm. lets it all out and we see him do exactly that after reading annie's letter and then directly citing that wisdom but it feels as if that gift that she is able to give him is not just what she left in the letter it's like it's that moment it's that ability to do that and i think it almost extends to abby as well that in Mm. give it in granting that to james she is able to get it as, as gain that ability as well this is getting so ephemeral but it nevertheless feels fitting that at this moment after all this time after all this distance and the tension and the rifts that have ebbed and flowed across the years and even across this book from like everything that was going on in where Abigail's mother worked and Rebecca and everything with that that here they are finally back and it's preceded by Abigail finally saying to James that the poem he read at Lucy's funeral was lovely. It's something she has never allowed herself to tell him Mm. because at that point... She cut herself off from him. Yeah. And they were wounded together. They could only heal together. It makes sense why it is this moment. It's in tandem with losing Annie. It's in 
tandem with this ebbing and flowing relationship with James and finally coming back to this source of trauma, because that is what Abigail is drawn to as an adult. She constantly takes it upon herself to return to previous sites that are connected to her or to things that she designates as being important, whether it's New Athens or going to where her mother worked or coming back here as a way of finding some sort of solace. And it appears that the third time was the charm because it actually works here. It actually does finally give her some, not closure, but it just relinks things. I can't help but think of that repeated line from Eldena Doublecast shipping videos. Mm-hmm. You're a firm believer in the inherent eroticism of shared trauma. <laughs> yeah, that, that that really does sum up the shift in a nutshell, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the simple fact of the matter is that Abigail wasn't going to heal until she was ready. So all aspects of both the events of Secret Rooms and Steamheart were necessary. There was a marked difference between what she thought she wanted and what she actually needed. It, of course, wasn't wrong to want agency, to want freedom, to want closure. But she wasn't going to be able to deal with her past honestly until she was willing to forgive herself and James for what happened until she could grieve and be honest about all the emotions she kept locked up. When Catherine asked Annie if she was sending James and Abigail to their deaths, what she may have been overlooking is that Weirwood wasn't offering them life. It was stasis, even if it was a stasis of their choosing. Only by leaving a place of safety and routine could they have the experiences they needed to grow. Leaving Weirwood forced them to talk, to collaborate, to consider things they never had. Annie and Butler challenged their preconceptions. Harry and Rebecca nurtured them. All members of Team Steam and beyond helped give them the tools to figure things out. And while Annie's death was tragic, it also forced Abby to consider that if Annie was no longer around to keep pushing her forwards, then she needed to find the Annie in herself. And so she's accompanied by the man she cares for and the voice of the woman that taught her to finally face her biggest trauma at this sacred place. The events of history are relayed to us through the sort of semi-comforting, but also just stolid narrative voice of Raven. The Mm. death of Grant, the Second Civil War, the uncertain future. His words are as much a commentary on the world that is, but also on the world that you and I live in. On the measure of people that refuse to be governed, the people that prefer fear and anger to hope. It sits with us like a weight, because hope for us does not stem from the outcome of this story, but rather from knowing that there are still good people in the form of our heroes and their allies that won't stop fighting for that better world. This story does not give us hope. 
hope is something we must give ourselves. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Greg. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world heal when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Because those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Greg, I think I do understand. I know now. Fokono's stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. Because they were holding on to something. But there's good in this world, Mr. Greg. And it's worth fighting for. Fuck you, Toby. <laughs> I, uh... I... I didn't recognize the speech when I first started reading it a few hours ago. But when I realized where you were going, I'm just like, oh, God. And of course, <laughs> it's Toby, the man whose world is the Lord of the Rings movies, the thing that connects him to Alex, that fucking brings out the Samwise Gamgee speech. <laughs> what you were saying, like... I it tapped into that feeling already. And I felt like that was that what you said was already perfect. And that the only thing I could do was do that. And I was wondering, cause I thought like, how long will it take for him to realize what I was doing? Like, and I decided that like, I would, if you hadn't figured it out already, tip my hat at like, you know, the final line being Mr. Greg instead of Mr. Frodo. So, uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I, I had, a sneaking suspicion as it continued, but yes, you you drop the anvil on that last line, and then I suddenly <laughs> realized what I was reading. Yep. <laughs> I have no notes. Uh, let's yep. just move on. That speaks for itself. Yeah. The penultimate question. What does it mean that the books of Secret Rooms, Arlington, Tiger's Eye, and Steamheart are now diegetic in our fictional world as of this final chapter. I asked you, do you think that this has any greater meaning, such as that these manuscripts are identical to the stories we have read, and therefore are able to encapsulate that everything did actually happen as described? But also, how can they be, as they can only guess at what happened with Haka not being able to interview him, although... If they've interviewed Brask at this point, they probably have some more details than they did before. Also, how hmm. does that fit into Frau not wanting to reveal her desire to stay with Seth? Is this a topic that we can mine any meaning from at all? Or should we just not follow it any further, lest our heads completely disappear up our asses? 
Well, I like that you're self-aware, Greg. Uh, <laughs> no, I group myself in that as well. Mm-hmm. I really don't buy that these books being a literal word-for-word copy of our own editions of these texts. Like, they will have much of the events, the feeling and the perspectives of them, but they cannot feature every voice and detail for much of the reasons that you've already gone over. They are Raven's narrativization of these journeys, and we can only guess at the format that he chose to shape each one in. But guessing at the details is, once again, missing the meaning for the details. Raven has put these experiences into written stories, something tangible and expressed. It is his way of making something out of all of this, from their most recent shared adventure to everything that each of them have carried and shared among them. The scene that comes to mind is when Abigail in Steamheart said, like, you know, raise your hand if you, I forget the wording, like... If you've lost a mother or a father. Yeah, this is the physical embodiment of that moment, that they have shared each other's stories and recognize each other's stories and what connects them, because what connects them is new century. And just as Harry took some strength from the story that the players had made of Catherine Holloway et al., we see the flicker of solace that she takes from this gift. It is not something she can read now, but she and we believe that she will one day in the hopefully not too distant future be able to. There is a line that I don't remember where it came from, although it's been bandied about on the Discord before in terms of it sometimes doesn't matter if a story makes sense in all of the details in the outline of the plot in the lore, as long as it makes emotional sense. Right. As a Kingdom Hearts fan, I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's mm. a way of bringing it home. The better a story is written, the less likely that we will dig into the nitty gritty and find ways to make some of the emotional outcomes less valid, less true. But mm. honestly, if it's written from an emotional perspective well enough, then little untidy details will fall by the wayside because the whole of it means more to us. Mm. And that's definitely something that was true of, like that's almost the definition of secure love. The fact that you can acknowledge some parts of this don't completely line up very well, I don't care. I love this story enough that I can acknowledge there are issues with it, but still love the story unconditionally. Precisely. And like that exact sentiment is expressed in a key moment of back in time plus space. Mm. You you mm. know the one. Like it mm. makes no sense. It's brilliant. That's totally what it is. And I don't think that these new documents are necessarily going to be as pivotal a cornerstone of this world as what the cartographer's handbook Mm, in mm. universes because that is like a story point that this is a book that is being passed around and Mm -hmm. is kind of a foundational thing i don't think that these books are going to be played into the plot enough for us to do that because without 
reading the text of it, we don't know what people would read of it. And because we have these questions of, well, how much of the text that we have would they be able to realistically have? Like, we can read a lot out of people's reactions to the cartographer's handbook because we have read every word of it ourselves. Mm -hmm. So when um, Rose McClellan's son cites a portion of it, we know what he's referring to because our minds go back to that. That, that is actually an important distinction there, that mm. the cartographer's handbook is diegetic in a way that these other texts are not up till mm. now, because its very existence affects the plot of Steamheart. It affects the yeah. plot of other books as well, but you, you brought up that pivotal scene that we literally just covered a moment ago, and that diegesis, therefore... Yeah. make something possible it, that would not otherwise be possible. Yeah, the, the existence of Raven's books doesn't necessarily impact the rest of the world, the setting of the RSA in the same way that the cartographer's handbook is listing in the universe does. It's more symbolic of recognizing what they have shared with one another. Like, that's mm. its purpose here. And also just symbolically for the end of phase one, it started mm. with a book and now it is ending with these books. It is like, it is literally bookkeeping. <laughs> yeah, again, magnificent turn of phrase there. Mm. I will be very intrigued to find out if the fact that Raven wrote these books will become relevant again, even if, if only in a small way, somewhere in the far future of, say, end of a century with someone in a room somewhere well, reading out Raven's novelization of Secret Rooms and every last one of them. Like some gentle merging of Bilbo's book There and Back Again and the epilogue of Uncharted 4. Yeah, well, if there's going to be characters in universe discussing these books, I think we know who it will be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> So, so wait, is the final scene of Stu Century just going to be you and I sitting in a room in comfy chairs, just sort of closing an enormous tome with a snifter of brandy and a pipe? If New Century is Hamlet, we are the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of New Century. Just... Oh God, don't say that. We know what happened to Rosencrantz and <laughs> Oh dear. Yeah, here we are at the end, and we still have a revelation to go over. To wrap up, for at least this recording, when we finished the story of Steamheart, we took Abby's closing words literally. I suppose we'll just have to wait and see. Now, you and I already know what came next. Mm -hmm. A lot of things have come next as of this recording. But more specifically, the next book was released less than six months after the final episode of Steamheart. And I asked... Yeah, exactly. Mm. And I asked you, if you could remember back that far, what story were you most hoping to hear expanded on in the wake of Steamheart finally being finished? I mean, I think the honest answer to that is probably 
I don't know, all of it. Like, mm. just the whole point is that you have now planted all of these new directions for everything to go in much more specific terms than the, you know, the first Avengers film ever managed mm-hmm. to. It's sort of, that one leaves things you know, deliberately open-ended because it's like the secret trick of the most successful period of the MCU, which is phases one to three, is that they made it seem like they had a plan, but it was the most successful game of consequences in media history. No one knows what they're doing. So now, like, with this, it's just a case of, okay, Alex is redefining it so he will not hold to a idea he had five years ago if that's no longer emotionally what he needs to write. Mm -hmm. But these have some specific building blocks that feel as if there is a direction in mind for really, if you just throw a dart at like the profile list, any of them have a story to tell. Hell, we've even seen a hint of one that you you and I still haven't even experienced yet. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I like think my honest answer is all of them. But mm-hmm. if I sort of really scroll through the mental files and try to think, like, who was I really itching to hear about first? I think it would be Harry's story. I mm-hmm. needed to hear what happened next for her, to hear what journey of pain and hopefully healing or adaptation into what comes next for her that she would go through. And I also think I needed to know what the hell was up with that or that Abigail took onto herself and what she and James would do next now that the portals were, you know, closing up. Because that is the quite surprising thing about Steamheart is that the big event of it is we are going to try and close the portals through which this whole play came through. And by the end of the book, there's still at least a couple of portals left we didn't actually finish it. There's still a little bit of quote unquote unfinished business left. Mm-hmm. And the attitudes and abilities of both James and Abigail have radically sort of, well, not radically, but they've definitely become intensified by the end of this book. And we will just have to wait and see how that pans out. I mean, we have waited and we have seen, but now we are doing it again. This project is so timey-wimey because I really am re-experiencing it all over again. Mm. This is the nice benefit of all of this, is that it's a way of manufacturing a sense of, like, yeah, let's go through it again. Because it is exciting to go through it piece by piece, even if you know where it goes. Because you are seeing how you get from A to Z. And we're not even at Z. We're, like, I don't know, at Q or something. (laughs) No, but as we'll get into next time... If New Century is a big emotional puzzle for us, then Steamheart is a big fucking piece. Yeah, it is. I don't remember what story I thought Alex was going to dovetail off on after the end of Steamheart. For some reason, I didn't think it was going to be Uncivil Outlaw, so I was surprised when they immediately decided to start off almost like, in in some ways, immediately after the events of that final scene but obviously we'll talk about that when we actually discuss uncivil outlaw and we've got other books to get to in the meantime because of Mm -hmm. the way we changed in which how we were decided 
we were going to cover these various books. Yeah, but, this is weird. I, I, I'm, I had mentally been like, oh, we're going to Uncivil Outlaw next, aren't we? It's like, nope, we're going no. to the chicken run of New Century. <laughs> what is it? So, wow, what a fascinating way of putting it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that's us. We'll see you around the multiverse. Take care. Of course, there is a post-credits epilogue. But since it's not load-bearing, and merely suggesting that Mr. White will be a going concern, something we already knew, there isn't much to be said for now. Although if you stay till the end of this recording, there will be some outtakes of questionable value. Next time will be an episode of Beyond the Wind Door, with a new B-team assembled to look at the 14th Doctor specials. To close us out, where else can we end but with the theme of steam? Until next time, this is Frederick Hagedus with Where the West Begins. To celebrate our newest addition to the Hamster family, it was uh, <clears throat> Flora's in the house, Apple's in the house, Pongo's in the house, and the house is the breadbin. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> and now, dear listeners, all of you have shared in that little detail. Starting out strong with some laughter. I appreciate that. You know, you say starting us off, but for the listener, it's finishing it off, isn't it? Because we're, yeah. we're in the 
mysterious outtake zone where space is warped and time is bendable and stuff that happens at the beginning will get inserted to the end. Well, you never know. I have surprised the listener by four by taking a little bit of an outtake and putting it right at the beginning. You don't own me. You can't control what I do with the edit. I am all powerful in the edit. Oh, yes, but that doesn't mean that I won't mess with you. I am a JRPG protagonist, and I will assault God! (laughs) It's been thrilling to see people's reactions to stories that, you know, you and I have had baked into just our general consciousness of... I am blanking on the term for it, but we are... We are deeply Lexi- aware. Our, our personal our lexicon. lexicon. Yeah, 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 that's a good one. They have been just so familiar to us to see people go through it, like Nama and, you know, Alejandra and other people as well. It's thrilling. It's always mm-hmm. thrilling. Like, it's always been nominally what this show has been for, is mm-hmm. to sort of just see and encourage more people to check it out. Obviously, like, in practice, it's kind of been, really, it's just a case of, we like to structure all of this, all of these wavering thoughts into something coherent and uh, hopefully fulfilling for ourselves and for anyone else who enjoys these stories. So shall we begin the process of talking about the last chapters of the longest one? Yes. (laughs) The stuff that you're alluding to here, honestly, as I mentioned, as I'm mentally putting together the outline before actually writing it down. I think that our wrap-up episodes are going to be more about the journey. Like that, like the fact that you and I both finishing Steamheart is kind of what set this off. That it's what got Alex to pull us in to interview them that fateful day in 2019. Yeah. So... It is kind of like, you know, this is the end of phase one of Through the Window, I guess, where it's just sort of like we've described each of the book series as our own seasons. And mm-hmm. now it's like, we're hey, we're entering the, we're going from the Russell T. Davis to the Stephen Moffat <laughs> era or something <laughs> to, like that. To literally to bring it back to Doctor Who. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because uh, Oh, am... God. Does that mean that we're going to regenerate? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, the role of Toby is now being played by Alejandra, and Greg <laughs> is now being played by Chris Fennick. Uh, <laughs> Chapter 34 is almost harder to get through than the previous. Uh, 41. You said 34. <sighs> okay. I don't know what happened there. Let's try again. <laughs> It is harder to get through to the previous one because you're like, well, I feel like we this flashback chapter is very strange. <laughs> Hello. Tag team back again. Check it directed and let's begin. Party on, pipe building. Hear some noise. DC's in the house. Jump, jump, and jump. Say party over here. Party over there. Wave your hands in the air. Shake it down, yeah. These three words when you're getting busy. Whoop, that is it, man. See, I would say, oh, good. Now we've both done an embarrassing song on recording in this session. Unfortunately, that was not embarrassing. That was legit (laughs) tight. So well done, sir. Thank you. After having freshly washed, after freshly 
having freshly <laughs> a freshly washed steam heart you like it was in a pretty bad state the last time you uh, we checked it so you might need to give that a bit of elbow grease oh. <gasps> and speaking of miracles ooh the cameo hello maureen hello he's saying hello oh. hi how are you, how how are you? you? i'm doing okay hello maureen I am good. I am sending. I am sending you love and hugs. <laughs> See, I am using rapport to communicate with the tiger. <laughs> Toby is using rapport to communicate with the tiger. Nice. <laughs> uh, I I really need to. Uh, it's a it's a goal of mine to learn. Not ASL, but BSL, because of course, mm. but uh, oh, sign right, language. Right, right. Exactly. Uh, I don't know if you caught that uh, uh, with uh, the whole palaver of the Game Awards the other night. One game that was revealed that I definitely want to show you away is a game that is, uh, it's called like Harmonium the Musical or something. Yeah. And it's this, okay. it's, it's like a video game that was made out of what if Disney did a musical about a deaf girl mm. and she is a character. So the protagonist is communicating through sign language and like, it's a musical with like where it goes into that. And a lot of the music is conveyed in that. And I'll show you the trailer later. It looks intriguing. Okay. Let's leave off that conversation there because we've already been recording for it an hour and obviously some of that was just the bullshit mm -hmm. our bullshit beginning but we only <laughs> just got to, to question number two or to point number two so let's dive back these, in these are multi-part questions we're fine <laughs> yeah that's fair that's fair it, okay it makes sense to us and we're the only ones who have to navigate this you dear listener just get to enjoy our fluid combat <laughs> i couldn't even finish that we've Get through this in whatever order we please, and you will sit there and like it. <laughs> ah, Toby, you're getting a little spicy in your old age. <laughs> I'm not turning 30 until next April, so you hush your face. Now, while I am turning 47, 48 in a couple of weeks, I've lost track already. I'm, I'm getting old. <laughs> I, I'm just just gonna paste you, in. You are young in spirit, dear sir. <laughs> I'm just I'm just gonna paste in the Grandpa Simpson quote here uh, for a, a humorous effect. I um, used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what mm -hmm. I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. Mm -hmm. It'll happen to you. 